Revelation chapter 2, that's where we'll be at tonight. Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 3 are what we call the current events chapter of the book. Um, No matter what your stance is on the tribulation, we haven't gotten there yet. So we are in the church age. Chapters 2 and 3 address the church age. There are several components to these two chapters that we must address. First of all, why seven churches? Um, The four that we are going to look at tonight, and then the three that are in chapter three, were there only seven churches? No, there were hundreds of churches in Asia Minor. Why these seven? Well, we kind of figure so far as what we can read, that these seven constituted the seven different types of congregations that you would see at any given time. Furthermore, some would argue that these churches represent specific periods of church age. In other words, there was a time when all the churches represented Ephesus. And then after that, they all represented Smyrna and so forth and so on. I disagree with that because when we look at the first four tonight, you and I will definitely see that there are some churches that fit these categories, sometimes multiple categories of the descriptions of these churches. Um, So, you know, folks look at it in in different ways, and um, um, I, I just take it as it is. These are seven descriptions of churches. And at any one time, the First Baptist Church of Boulogne can look like at least one of them, maybe even several at the same time. Our goal is to not look like hardly any of them in terms of the issues that they were dealing with. But I will say this. I am more frightful of a church that has the appearance of everything being okay than a church that has issues. I can always, listen, I can almost always guarantee you when a church has issues, that is precisely the church that has something about Jesus going on inside of it. Okay? Okay, really. You may have divisions and fights and arguments over which way to go and you know and, and kick back on leadership. Well, at least you've got leadership trying to do something. You may have divisions and faults over sin. Well, at least you got a church that is identifying something that may or may not be a problem. At least you've got a church that's perceptive on something. Okay? So my point is, I don't like to pastor a church where stuff like that's happened, but I do not always see a crisis as just a problem in and of itself. Crises always bring forth opportunity. We have to make the best of it and seek God's glory more more than anything else. So, Let's begin with, we're in chapter 2, and let's begin, we're only going to examine chapter 2. Let me find that in my Bible, here we are. Um, We are going to look at the church of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, or Pergamum, and Thyatira. Those are the four churches. There are going to be five uh, five 
component to every church that we're going to examine, more or less. Look at Ephesus, and you can see the letters underneath Roman numeral 1. Here are the basic five components. Number one, you will see a characteristic of Christ that's being given. Letter B, that church will be given a commendation, typically. Letter C, that church will also receive a condemnation, typically. Letter D, the church will be given some counsel as to what to do. And then a challenge. Okay, So you're going to see this pattern over the next seven churches. I don't mind at all, my brother. <laughs> Ephesus. What kind of church was this? It was a fundamental yet fallen church. Fundamental yet fallen. F-A-L-L-E-N. Fallen. Ephesus was one, was once one of the new, strongest New Testament churches. It was directly founded by Paul in Acts chapters 18 through 20. They were known. Their reputation was their fervency in evangelism. They were all about the gospel. Look at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We have already seen the imagery earlier in chapter 1. The characteristic of Christ here is a reminder of the sovereignty of God which covers every New Testament church. His sovereignty is a reminder of our security. 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 That's the blank. Mm-hmm. Matthew 16, verse 18, Christ says, I will build your church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Why are you shaking your head? That's not what he said? That's right. He says, I will build my church. Okay? That's important for two reasons that I can think of, at least number one. It ain't your church because, number two, we are the church. When he says he's going to build his church, he's talking about us. Paul said also almost a, uh, a weird quotation when he says, I am confident that he who began a good work in you, in Christ Jesus, will bring it to completion. That's what he's talking about. Okay? So this was a so we are reminded that, that Christ is over the church. There's a commendation in verses 2 and 3, and then in verse uh, 6. First of all, in verse 2, I know your good works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and are bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So the first three commendations, that they, there's four of them, but the first three we find in those verses. Number one, good works. Number two, they rejected evil and false apostles. Now, how do you do that, by the way? How do you, how do you reject them? How are you going to know how to reject them is a better way to question it. By, their, uh, by what they do. 
speak, the the apostles, the, the false prophets, they yeah. they taught they they're, they're as a matter of fact the apostasy they they were a lot, there were a number of them during the early church that were uh, teaching false type teaching. Okay, how do you know that? How do you know if they're false? Because you got to know it yourself. Okay. Now listen, I love the fact that y'all sit here with a smile on your face and everybody comes in on Sunday morning and Sunday night. They all come and flock to hear my wonderful preaching. Hmm. Listen, guys, I ain't enough. As a matter of fact, the primary mantle of responsibility is on you. Okay? Because I misquoted a verse on purpose a while ago. Now, I hope most all of you caught it and just y'all were just quiet hoping that well maybe he knows he made a mistake. <laughs> but listen, um, yeah. So not because I'm trying to be a false apostle. I'm just I'm just saying that I don't always get it right because my mouth and tongue are fallible. Okay? So I may it may come out wrong, you know. So y'all need to know that. But that's how they knew it. All right, verse 3, they persevered in patience. Don't ever pray for patience, y'all. Okay? Because you'll, you'll get exactly what the Lord needs for you to have. All right. The, uh, the, the other commendation is in verse 6. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So their fourth commendation was rejecting the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. What is the Nicolaitans? Let me explain that for you very quickly. Nicolaitans comes from a Greek word, two actual Greek words. Um, the first part of the word Nicolaitans comes from the Greek word Niko. N-I-K-O. Niko. Uh, the second part is Laetans actually came from the Greek word where we get another word called Laetans. They were selling doctrine and selling their teachings to, uh, I'm so, excuse me, I'm so, so, so sorry. I'm about to explain some, somebody else. <laughs> um, they preferred Christian liberty over everything else. That's what they wanted. They, they re preferred Christian liberty without regard to the offenses that it could cause to the weaker brother. Romans chapter 14 through 15 talks about we don't intentionally offend our weaker brothers. We have liberties. Paul also preached in 1 Corinthians that uh, we do have extreme liberties with, I mean, because we've been set free, you know. So, I mean, there are a lot of things that we are able to do without the constraints uh, of sin attached to it. However, some may, may look at what I do and say, I just don't think you need to be doing that. We need to be respectful of that weaker brother. Uh, they said, you know what? Forget that. Let's just do what we're going to do. And we're going to do it how we're going to do it. Is, is there a, uh, a warning that, that 
You know what? I have I have often I've debated that myself. There's probably a stream of that in there. Antinomianism is what he's talking about. Antinomianism says we just don't need a law. I think they would say you need a law. Because you're going to have to have some guidelines of whatever, but my law may look different than your law, you know. But we all know the greatest law is love. You know, Jesus talked about uh, of the three things that remain, faith, hope, and King James says charity. The greatest of these is what? Charity, love. Um, Irenaeus, who was a early, early uh, church father and historian, wrote, the Nicolaitans lived lives of unrestrained indulgence. They had a condemnation, though. What were they doing wrong? The church of Ephesus, in verse 4, they had left their first love. They were no longer fervent for Christ. That is your blank. They are no longer fervent for Christ. How do you think that looks like in a modern church? What, what, how do you think we would categorize a church that has fallen from its first love? What do you think it would look like? Pretty dry. I think worship would be come in and all you got. I guess you can you can be pretty, but you just come in and, and go out and the pastor stands up and whatever he says. Which, as a matter of fact, we can see that today on some of the get pep rallies from the mm-hmm. pastor. He, he doesn't preach the word. As a matter of fact, he, a lot of times uh, you'll, you'll hear some that he, he forgets to quote scripture. I wonder if he even opens his Bible. Um, but they are good in evangelism. <laughs> well, they got big crowds. They draw crowds. Well, I, mean, I was kind of referring to Ephesus. You know how how what would a church look like that would be good at the works, but they don't have the love. Busy for busy's busy busy sake. If you don't have love, what do you think interpersonal relationships look like? I bet they're pretty crabby, aren't they? Yeah. You know, you know. We started Monday night with the training for those who want to be small group facilitators, and I made a remark that sometimes our size has done us an injustice. And one of the goals of small groups, just like Sunday school, small group ministries is just like Sunday school. Because the point of Sunday school is to build interpersonal relationships among groups that have a lot of similarities. Now hear me on this. It is not inherently sinful for groups of people in a church to be more closely related to others because, let's just face it, those who are 60 and over see things about life very differently than I do, okay? Um, I'm now in a phase of my life that when kids talk about their tests at school, it's, well, I said, my phase of life is I ain't worried about a test unless it ends with ology, you know. <laughs> That's when I worry about tests. Th- this was a church that had gotten so busy. Now, now here, here's the point. We have to be careful as a church in your leadership, talking about from your pastor down, committees, ministry leaders, etc. When we stop, when we just fill up a calendar to be busy, I think that's a good indication. But just because you're busy doesn't mean you're doing something bad. 
one of the first items on my agenda as your pastor is to give us a stated reason why we exist. I asked the question outright, and one of our deacons, I asked him, I said, why does this church exist? Why are we different from any other church in this area? And I could have asked y'all the same thing. Your answer would have been all the same. You don't know. And so in 2013, all of our core leadership, we got together, and I led them through the whole year and said, guys, what is our mission? Then what's going to be our vision? What do we want to see happen as a result of this church? That's why we have all those statements up on the wall in the foyer. So everything we do is directly pointed to why God has us here in the first place. That's a really good safeguard to make sure we keep love, Christ-like love, in the midst of everything that we do. All right, counsel in verse 5. They were told to do two things. Number one in verse 5, it says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. And number two, uh, repent and do the works you did at the first. So number one, remember from where you fell. Number two, repent. Notice that he said, do the same work you were doing before. Go back to what you were doing. What you were doing was great. But you just got busy. You forgot how to love one another. By the way, that's the same as loving God. You know that, right? That's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus says the second is just like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. All right, and then verse 7. There's a challenge. Hear what the Spirit says. And to him that overcomes will eat from the tree of life. What in the world is he talking about here? Can anybody give us any insight on the tree of life? Where have we seen that before? Garden of Eden. Exactly. Yeah. You remember there's two trees. One we preach about, one we ignore. The one we preach about is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree we forget about is the tree of life. Now, here it's mentioned, and it's mentioned in one more place. Do you know where it's mentioned? Revelation. Revelation. Because I put that on your paper, I think. In New Jerusalem, right in the middle of the city, there is a river. It's crystal clear. And at that river, in the middle of the city, is that tree of life. We end the same way God wanted us to begin. Isn't that great? All right, that's Ephesus. Number two is Smyrna. Smyrna. They are purified through persecution. This was a church that was purified through persecution. Smyrna was a financial and trade center of Asia Minor. Many in that city were blinded by success to have any concern for Christ or his church. The name Smyrna comes from the Greek word meaning myrrh, which means bitter. If you'll remember, that's one of the gifts brought to Jesus. Gold, frankincense. Hey, brother. Gold. He's one of our actors. He's the husband. He's going, he's going through the, he's having to sleep in the closet tonight. <laughs> but um, meaning myrrh, remember gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and it means bitter. This was appropriately symbolic of the bitter persecution encountered by the church at Smyrna. When the church attempted to share the gospel, the citizens were quickly annoyed, resulting in terrible persecution. Verse 8 gives us the character of Christ. Let's read it, uh, follow along with me. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. This, uh, this characteristic is a reminder 
of the eternal presence and the overcoming power of Jesus Christ. Eternal presence and overcoming power. It's represented because we see the words of the first and the last. That's eternal presence. And died and came to life. That's overcoming power. Their commendation. Verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are synagogue of Satan. Smyrna was given a most wonderful commendation. They endured persecution and, and what I called it with outstanding grace. They under, uh, underwent persecution with, with outstanding grace. They just, they endured it. They took it. You know, they just took it on the chin, so to speak. They turned their cheek, you know, um, how it goes. They endured attacks by those who only wanted to claim Abraham as a descendant, but not his God as their Lord. That's what he's talking about by saying that, uh, that they say that they are Jews and are not. They're really from the synagogue of Satan. In other words, they had a group of people who say, uh, you know what? Well, let me let me kind of translate it to modern-day vernacular. These people say, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Mm-hmm. I see you. I see you. Listen. Uh, we can't judge hearts. But the Bible says that every good tree bears good fruit. I can tell the difference between an apple tree and a plum tree by looking at the fruit. So what does that tell us? There is something that we can see. There is something to be observed. Okay. These guys said, oh, you know, they wanted the genealogy. They wanted to the, the acclaim of being a Jew. But they didn't want to have anything with Yahweh. You see the difference? <coughs> the praises are on their lips, but their hearts are far from him. That's what Matthew said. Well, that's what Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew. Their condemnation. Now, this was interesting. Absolutely no condemnation in this church. This church was purified through persecution. They were purified through persecution. How many of you have heard of the Voice of the Martyrs? It's an organization that uh, keeps us informed of persecution throughout the world. I have spoken with folks who've been in those hotbed areas of the Middle East and China, elsewhere, Russia. And uh, I have heard this report on a number of occasions by a number of people, so there's obviously truth to it. That just as we are praying for the ending of persecution, there are people praying for the Western church to be persecuted just for purification's sake because we become so watered down. We become afraid to stand for the gospel. Um, boy, I don't want to see persecution any more than you do. But you know what? When or if it comes, I pray that we would endure it with grace. Amen. Uh, you wonder why the churches in the dark areas of the world are thriving so well? Because to be a part of them means you must be willing to give your life. By the way, I went to seminary with some men who were called to be martyrs. They were going to prepare for the gospel ministry, and they were going to some very dangerous areas, and they were pretty certain that they were going to be killed, but they were okay with that. They had surrendered their life 
the gospel ministry. Their counsel in verse 10 is thus. um, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. In China, um, I would encourage you to read a book called The Insanity of God. lives in Jacksonville, Florida. I've eaten lunch with him on a time or two. That book is about recent first-hand accounts of persecution beginning from the 90s up to just a number of years ago. Um, He's been in Somalia and done some work there. Uh, Somalia um, is one of the areas that, unbeknownst to most people in the church, it's one of the hardest-hit areas. There's virtually no believers there. At one time, the government had said that they had killed every believer in Somalia. And he talks about that in the book. Um, but um, in China, you don't have a lot of respect unless you've been to jail for your faith. Mm. Okay, 10 days. You're going to endure suffering for 10 days. What in the world is he talking about? There are a couple of interpretive uh, issues here. One says that the ten days represents ten seasons of persecution under Roman emperors. Um, I will confess that I held to that view for a long time. The more that I have studied that, the more that I I am becoming um, disenfranchised with that interpretation. Several reasons why. Number one, the the Roman Empire had more had a longer succession of ten emperors at this from, from this time onward. There were more emperors. So, I mean, it's, so you can't just call it something associated with the Roman Empire, nor could you identify it with the next ten emperors that came in line historically because they had different levels of ways that they treated the church. Okay? <coughs> Secondly, And most importantly, there is nothing within the text itself to indicate anything other than 10 consecutive days, 24-hour periods. Why should that be a preferred interpretation? Well, several reasons. One, you and I both know that in times of intense illness, sickness, persecution, whatever, it's not eternal. Jesus says, Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're you're passing through. Intense persecution only lasts for a season. I'm from northeastern North Carolina, and oddly enough, I've I've endured more hurricanes probably than y'all have in y'all's lifetime. Since 1974, we have weathered some pretty severe ones in North Carolina multiple times, sometimes two in one year. Okay, I mean, I'm talking Cat 3 and Cat 4 storms. Um, They don't last forever. The eye of the hurricane, however, is very unique. You can have intense storms, and then when the eye comes over, you can actually have crystal clear blue sky. (coughs) Then the worst part comes. The worst part of a hurricane is always on 
that opposite end, okay, because the way the wind patterns are. But even then, it's gone. It will leave, you know. So just taking the word as it is, I think that's just the wisest approach because it's teaching us that we can have and we can endure intense seasons of persecution. It won't always be as bad as it is at one given time. Okay. Um, all right, so the, the, the counsel there, be faithful to the end. Okay, just keep doing what you're doing. And then the challenge, hear what the Spirit says. The one who conquers will not taste the second death. Second death. And I've cross-referenced a couple of passages, Revelation 20. Now this is talking about the, 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 uh, the millennial reign, okay, the, the beginning of the millennial reign. Um, um, when we talk about millennial views, um, you have to understand that part of that final judgment, you know, Jesus is already talking about it in the church age. Um, that is why there are there is more discussion on views of tribulation rather than views of the millennium. Um, it's very difficult to argue anything other than pre-millennial viewpoints, but there are excellent arguments for various views of tribulation. But what he's talking about here is that second death. What happens at the end of, um, or at the beginning, rather, of a um, millennial reign. 